Okay, so we're looking at a really great passage today. It's, they're all great, uh, but this is a really uniquely applicable, probing passage today. I was, the National Institute of Health says if you're like most people, you think that heart disease is a problem for others. But heart disease is the number one killer in the U.S., and it's also a major cause of disability. And so we know that our hearts are critical for our physical health, and some of us know that very personally, as they've suffered heart disease. Some of us, or most of us, know it emotionally, as dear ones of ours have. And so we're really thankful for our medical personnel across the board for paying attention to our hearts. And so if they advise us to screen our heart's functioning or go through some treatment or some regular evaluation, we're going to listen, we're going to act, and we're just going to do it. It's that critical. And so the Bible also says that the heart is critical. And Scripture speaks of the heart in a, in a figurative sense. But the way Scripture talks, it's all about the heart. Um, God wants your heart. He wants your heart today, and it doesn't matter what age you are, He wants your heart. And so you can imagine the Father looking at you this morning and saying the words of Proverbs 23, 26, my son, my daughter, give me your heart. Give me your heart. And He would be saying, like, your presence in the pew is wonderful, it's great, I want you here, but I want your heart. And then we could imagine the Father speaking to us this morning, Proverbs 4.23, when he says, above all else, guard your heart. Like, that's not an easy thing to do. Guard it, your heart. Take care of your heart, for everything in life flows from it. Like, don't give it up. It's one of the most convicting things to me is the way I've like, given my heart to things. So the heart isn't just your emotional Life. It's not your emotions, the way you're feeling. It's that. Um, that's how our world uses heart. But in the Bible, the heart is the central organ of the soul. Like the, the invisible part of you is the most important part of you, and the central organ of that is your heart. The center of the human personality. The essential core of who you are, the real you, is your heart. It, it's what gets your attention. It's what holds your commitments. It's what motivates you to act. It encompasses your, your mind and your affections and your will. The heart has it all. So if our physical heart health is critical to us, how much more is our biblical heart health? And just like physical heart health uh, disease isn't just a problem for others, but for us. Even so, biblical heart disease isn't just an issue for other people. Like, we got to be careful about ourselves. And so that's where we come in Jesus' sermon. And so it's Luke 6, 43. When Jesus says, For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good 
fruit, for each tree is known by its fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil, for out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. Well, let's pray this little prayer of illumination. Let's pray together. Thank you, Holy Spirit, that we were born again through the imperishable seed of the living and abiding Word of God, the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. In these moments, write its truth even deeper within our hearts. Amen. So this morning, as you sit here, what would you say is the state of your, of your heart today? So in this portion of Jesus' sermon, Jesus' version of the Sermon on the Mount, the good physician, we could say the good cardiologist, um, he prescribes for us a screening tool. And notice the first word is for. So in your English translations, probably it says for. And the purpose of that little conjunction is to explain what Jesus has just said. It links, it connects it with the section that's previous to this section. And so the previous section is that section about judging others that we so often endeavor to take the speck, this little flake of wood or straw out of our brother's eye, while at the very same time we have this builder's beam, like that, you know, that would hold up the whole house, like protruding from our eyes. And it's a ridiculous imagery to think that how on earth are you going to be able to pluck out something so small from your brother when you have this ginormous piece of wood sticking out of your eyes. So Jesus says, if you're ever going to be helpful to your brother and his eye, you need to first deal with the log in your own eye. You got to know you have it and then you got to deal with it. So then if, if our section is connected to that previous section, then Jesus is like upping the ante on how important it is for us. And so he's saying that this tendency that you and I have, he says this, you need to remove the log from your eye, meaning that that obsessive self-righteousness you have and that leads you to judge others and condemn others and to hate people and be unloving because that's bad fruit. And it's really critical to you because... Bad fruit isn't just an issue of behavior or speech. Bad fruit reveals a bad heart. It's a heart condition. It goes deep. And so it's critical. So Luke's focus here is on the need for self-examination to assess the state of our own hearts, to perceive what's going on and not to be blind about it. And remember prior, he talked about being blind and falling into a hole. So In Matthew's Sermon on the Mount, uh, his focus is different. He uses this parable too. So Jesus preached a big sermon. Each author used the parts and the foci that they wanted to emphasize in a bigger sermon. So Matthew takes it one way. And Matthew says, introducing this parable, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing for inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. And then he goes on with this parable. So the the focus there is, is, is discerning your teachers. You don't want to be led by a blind teacher. And that's, and it's very important, but Luke's focus is different. And Jesus said both. 
Matthew proves this in that Matthew 12, he takes the parable a different way. He takes it in a self-examination sense. And that's the way Luke is using it here. He's urging us to screen our own hearts. Like, don't just let an event blow by you when you know it didn't go well, but take the opportunity to look and see what was moving you to say and act that way. So it's an issue of self-examination. Luke isn't saying we need to be fruit inspectors of other people. That would actually fail with respect to the parable they just spoke about the log and the speck. What he's telling us to do is first to realize how I've lacked love, I've hated, I've been self-righteous, I've been hypocritical or caustic, I've judged and condemned, and to ask, well, what does that say about my heart? You know? And then after I've kind of done that work, all right, now I've removed the log, and now I can be helpful in personal ministry. Now I can go to my brother and we can talk things out. So Jesus says in this little parable, a good, healthy, useful tree will not bear bad, sick, rotten fruit, nor will a bad, sick, rotten tree bear good, healthy, useful fruit. For the state, the condition, the nature of each tree is, is revealed by the quality of the fruit it produces. You, you can't separate the two. The quality of the tree determines the quality of the fruit it bears. A sick tree bears sick fruit. A healthy tree bears healthy fruit. Well, then Jesus gives two other illustrations to press this point further. He goes, you do not look to gather figs from a thorn bush, nor do you seek to pick grapes from a bramble bush. Well, that just wouldn't make sense. I don't go to a bramble bush uh, looking for grapes. I don't go to a thorn bush looking for figs. It's impossible for a certain kind of tree or shrub to produce a different kind of fruit. A tree produces what it is, not something else. It isn't capable of bearing fruit from a different species of plant. Doesn't make sense that we would look for such. So then Jesus takes all this and he applies it to illustrate two types of people. So he says, a good person from the good treasure stored up in his heart. The heart is a storeroom of treasure. Another way to view it. From that storeroom of treasure, he, he bears or produces good. Um, and an evil person from the evil treasure stored up in his heart. Again, the heart is a storeroom of treasure. In this case, it's evil. From that like warehouse of evil in his heart, from that he bears or produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. So Jesus focuses on, on speech here. Uh, we can say, what we say reflects what's stored up in the treasure room of our heart. Calvin says it this way, the tongue is the portrait of the mind. The tongue is the portrait, like you're painting a portrait of what's going on in your mind by what you say. So 
Jesus focuses on speech here because of the previous illustration about the log and the speck, and also prior to that, a blind man seeking help from a blind teacher. However, what he says about what we say also applies to what we do. So the things we say and the things we do don't just happen. They arise from what's in the heart. The, the, the roots produce the fruit. So when we do or say evil things, we have to trace it back to evil hearts. And that's always the process in the Christian life. We don't keep it in a veneer on the externals. We go to the heart because that's what God wants. So I want to I apply this in three ways. First, a perspective on our culture. A perspective on our culture. So Jesus says a person isn't necessarily good. And our culture doesn't like that. Um, our culture says we are all basically good. It's just that we sometimes do bad things. And so then we ask, why do we sometimes elect to do bad things according to our culture? And they'll, they'll reference things like group norms or the herd instinct or external forces or societal pressures uh, make us do evil. And we don't discount the influence of these things. It's just that that doesn't get down to the root of it. I mean, why is society as a whole like that? Like, society is the individual on a grand scale. We can't disconnect a, a, a group of people from, from people. And so we really can't understand the atrocities in Ukraine or why that war would take place or the killing of school children without realizing the evil of the heart. So we live in a culture marked by expressive individualism. Uh, Kevin DeYoung titled this speech he recently gave, middle of May, a graduation speech in Geneva College. I'd encourage you to go read it. It's just a great little speech. He goes, he titles it, Whatever You Do, Do Not Be True to Yourself. Now, he qualifies it later, but what a title. He's getting somewhere with it. He's, he's countering the ordinary graduation speeches. You know, you almost can... Um, you just know what's going to happen, what they're going to say. Normal graduation speeches, it's follow your dreams, march to your own drummer, be true to yourself. And we send off our kids. So what is he getting at? Well, he's saying our world tells us in a thousand commercials and television shows and movies and songs that the best way to live. In fact, the only authentic way to live is for you to be you, for you to live out your truth, for you to find your true self and then have the courage to live it out accordingly, if you're going to be honest and authentic. So Carl Truman defines expressive individualism this way, that each of us finds our meaning, our identity, by giving expression to our feelings and desires, which then need to be affirmed by others, such that if you deny my feelings and desires, you're not just denying feelings, you're denying my personhood, and it gets real intense at that point. So DeYoung uh, references two movies, building off a movie review in World Magazine, and they show the shift in our culture over the last 10 years, even more towards expressive individualism, even the movies our children watch. And, well, we watch them too. And so he compares these two Pixar movies. And so I got real into it, so I watched both these movies this week. It's just a great time, but... So the first one is Brave, if you remember Brave in 2012. And then the next one is Turning Red in 2022. Have we watched these movies? And um, 
So they're both delightful, a lot of similarities. Uh, both feature strong-willed mothers and daughters. Mothers who have these intense expectations for their daughters and daughters who push back against those expectations and it leads to a big conflict. So also both feature family members turning into bears. So brave, it's a big brown bear and turning red is a big red panda and both these bears damage a lot of stuff. However, with all the similarities, uh, the core message of the respective movies is significantly different, radically different. So in Brave, if you recall, I know it's been a few years, uh, the mother and daughter have this conflict. The daughter buys a spell to change her mother, deceives her in that, and does so so that she can follow her heart. Her mother turns into a powerful bear, kind of a symbol of her dominance, but really the, the dominance of both their emotions. And through this conflict, the whole kingdom comes to the brink of chaos and war with itself. And so what's the solution as the movie winds up? Both mother and daughter have to realize they've been selfish and prideful and they've hurt themselves and hurt others. They ask for forgiveness for their attitudes and actions. They mend their relationship and it's symbolized by this tapestry they have to sew back together. Now turning red this year tells a story also of a daughter who has... And she reaches middle school and she's beginning to mature. And as she does show, she experiences these strong feelings and emotions. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, as she experiences these strong feelings and emotions, she all of a sudden turns into a big red panda. And the panda symbolizes these messy desires of hers, big desires of hers. So come to find out all the ladies in the family for generations have had this curse slash blessing. So all the ladies in the family have gone through a ritual to contain the panda. And they plan this for her. Yet the daughter decides she doesn't want to go through with it. She doesn't want to control her panda, but rather let it out, express it, make room for it. And that leads to a whole lot happening. She deceives her mother. She causes a lot of damage, not all of her fault. But then how does resolution happen in the story? Well, it's not confessing selfishness and pride. And how it hurt people, it's that everyone ends up saying that the daughter was right to follow her heart and be true to herself. The mother actually says, don't hold back for anyone. The further you go, the prouder I get. And the daughter, kids with her mother, my panda, my choice, with an allusion to the popular pro-choice slogan, is to say, I'm autonomous over my body and over my feelings. I'm going to act them out and you're going to affirm me. It's a radically different message. But scripture would strongly counter that. It's true that God knows us by name. He knows the number of hairs on our heads. He created you unique. He loves your personality and gifts. However, in the first place, the heart is more fundamental than just our feelings and our desires. It encompasses mind, will, and emotions. The heart isn't passive, it's active. We're not to be swept away by our desires. Rather, we're to think them through in relation to truth that comes from the outside, not this inner truth that wells up from the inside. And second, Scripture says, by nature our hearts aren't good but evil. We should only ever consider following our hearts that our hearts being restored by Jesus. So that's a perspective on our culture. What about a perspective on conversion? It leads to a perspective on conversion. Notice what Jesus says. He says, a bad tree cannot produce good fruit. It's impossible for it to do so. 
And the whole context is that we're all by nature bad trees. We can't by nature do any spiritual good. We're, we're not able. We, we lack the natural power to produce good fruit. And Jesus has already said to the Pharisees when he was at the party at Levi's house, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. The implication is you've got to realize you're sick before you ever get well. And in the context of chapter 5, he's calling us all spiritual lepers and spiritual paralytics. Really, he's saying we all have a fatal heart disease by nature. And so the whole point of Jesus' sermon is that you've got to enter into by faith my revolutionary upside-down kingdom so that my power will change your heart and make you a good tree to bear good fruit. You need me. You need me. And this is this, this, this doctrine of our natural inability. Jeffrey Thomas, the Welch preacher, says that's the most offensive doctrine to our culture. Like, we just don't like it. But Scripture's clear about that. We are unable to change on our own. Externally, yes. Habits, yes, maybe, but not the heart. Jesus says, I have to make you a different tree. And, and throughout Scripture, we talk like that. The sinful mind is hostile to God. It cannot submit to God's law, nor can it do so. You know, Romans 8, like, the Spirit has to be in our minds and hearts to change us. That comes through the gospel. It's a powerful, recreative thing that the Spirit does in our lives. We, we, we're desperate for gospel power in our lives. Well, how about a perspective on change then, flowing out of a perspective on conversion? Third, how about a perspective on change? And, you know, we've, we've, we've listened to Paul David Tripp, marriage um, teaching. We've read his books. He does such a great job with this passage. And so he says, imagine I have an apple tree in my backyard, and yet each year it produces these dry, wrinkled, brown, mushy apples. And after a few years, my wife gets fed up with it, and she looks at me and she says, can't you do something about those dry, wrinkled, brown, mushy apples in the backyard? So Paul David Tripp says, all right, so I get to thinking, and I devise a plan. I go gather together some branch cutters and an industrial-grade staple gun, a ladder, and two bushels of apples. Then I go out to my sickly apple trees, climb the ladder, cut off all the pulpy apples, and staple onto all the limbs my new shiny red apples. And then I'll go back to the house. I stand there with my wife. I admire how all those trees look because from a distance they look great. Yet if I were to ask my wife what she thought about my plan, what would she say to me? She'd say, you're crazy. What would you just do? You didn't change anything. And he says, well, that's how crazy it is to seek behavior change and not heart change. Change that ignores the heart won't be true change. It'll just be fruit stapling. And fruit stapling relies on external pressure and incentives to control behavior. And we often treat people that way. We treat our families, our spouses, our children, our parents, our friends. We may threaten. I'll ground you if you do that again. Or more passive-aggressively, I'm going to withhold what you want if you withhold from me. Or we just outright manipulate. If you do this, I'll reward you with this. Or we instill guilt. I'm always doing stuff for you and you can't even do this. Or more positively, we get accountability partners. We set up structures and habits. 
The religions and self-help strategies of the world want to change too, and that's how they go about it. Disciplines and rules, and a lot of this is helpful. We need to do a lot of this. Yet Jesus says, if we don't get to the heart, we miss the driving force of real change. Good fruit comes from good hearts. So what do we do? Well, in any event, we have to get the heart of the matter, the root of our fruit. We practice screening of ourselves. We ask those questions that are difficult to ask, like, what am I wanting right here? What am I committed to? How am I loving something else more than God and others? What's driving me here? Or really, we're saying, what's the treasure of my heart here? What am I worshiping here? What's stored up that I have to have? If I'm walking into a group of people and I have a glass of water and somebody bumps me and I spill water all over the floor and somebody asks, where'd this water come from? And my initial reaction could be, well, he bumped me. But that's only like the immediate cause. The ultimate cause is I enter the room with water. Like I have to go to my heart. Back in October, I was walking my huge dog Never owned a huge dog before, and I was walking with my left hand, talking in a very important church call with my right hand, and he lunges off. And in the blink of an eye, I got angry. And I went, get back here, and went like this with my arm. And I ripped rotator cuff. I thought it would heal up on its own. It didn't. My New Year's resolution was to go to Mary Beth and get some PT. I'm still dealing with it, but my dog is not the cause of my injury. My dog is the occasion of my injury. My sin is the cause of my injury. Like I send myself into a rotator cuff injury. So when God reaches into our lives in the gospel of Jesus Christ, he takes stony hearts out and puts a soft heart in. We're reborn. We're new creations by faith. Yet the progress of the Christian life is to become more of who we are. And the old man goes into overdrive at this point. So when we see bad fruit, it's like a heart screening. We get the opportunity to go down and see how we're not believing the gospel. What's the key for us? The key is that King Jesus would be more and more our chief treasure of our hearts. It's always the key. And that's how we change. He fills up that storeroom more and more, and his life ends up becoming more our life. We start seeing that our own agendas are empty. Our own selfishness and pride is empty, and we see Jesus full of grace, full of mercy right here. He's what we want. He's what we want. And so Paul David Tripp says it well. The primary battle of life is fought and won on the soil of the human heart. It always is. And that's what Jesus' revolutionary upside-down kingdom has to do with. He came for the heart. Like he went to the cross for your heart. It takes the one preaching this to make the change. That's why he's the king here. And so it takes him taking all of our sinful, polluted hearts, making them his own, and taking judgment on our behalf at the cross. It takes him resurrecting from the dead to give us new life. It takes him ascending into heaven in order to receive all glory and riches for us in order to grant us the blessings that truly satisfy our hearts that we're created for. And we keep looking in other places. We keep looking in false saviors like comfort and pleasure and freedom and money and approval and safety and security, but none of them satisfy. We go from one to the next, hoping that we can fill that treasure house, but we're created to have the Redeemer sitting squarely in that treasure house and his life becoming our life. And so 
John Newton's famous phrase, it's just so good, I am not what I ought to be, and I'm not what I want to be, and I'm not what I hope to be in another world, but I can't wait to get there. But still, I am not what I once used to be, and by the grace of God, I am what I am every day. And every day that grace becomes sweeter and sweeter. As he would say, it's an amazing grace. I once was lost, now I've found. I once was blind, now I see. And it covers all my sin, gives me all this goodness, and it's what satisfies you. It's what you're made for. So we get to look at our hearts and screen them and go back to Christ, that he will be our treasure more and more. Maybe so. Amen. Let's stand.